If you have your Bible, please take it and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 6. You know, one of the hard things about studying God's Word, especially for us as 21st century Americans, is that we struggle with the reality that sometimes some passages of Scripture are just hard to understand. <laughs> we know that the Bible was written so that we could learn from it, so we can grow from it, and yet sometimes there are passages that are just difficult, and sometimes it's because of the language. We're working with an ancient language that uh, changes over the centuries and now over millennia. Sometimes it is because words are used in the Bible that have fallen out of use, and so we're not exactly sure what they mean. And what we have happened is we can have a group of biblical scholars, all of whom we respect, highly respect, and they have widely divergent opinions on what a passage means in terms of the actual text. But I want you to understand something. That does not mean that we can't learn from the text. It just means we have to look for underlying truths and meanings, and we're going to deal with that today. I'm going to teach you some things today in the process of this message that maybe you've never really thought about before, not so much from the Word, although we'll be learning from that as well, but also how to study the Word. I've been teaching a class at the Southwest Illinois School of Theology on preaching, and one of the things I'm telling the students is that every sermon has to engage your mind so that you think. It has to engage your heart so you have some feeling and emotion about what you have read, and it should touch your will. It should affect the way that you act and the way that you work in your daily life. But not every sermon can be divided up in those three equal categories with equal amounts of time. And so this morning, we're going to spend probably more time than normal with our heads because we've got to work through some difficult phrases and terms in this passage. So I want you to hang with me. You're going to really have to engage your mind for probably at least 10 minutes of thinking on some difficult things so that we can build a foundation for what God wants to say to us today. So bear with me, give me some time, and we'll lay a good foundation so that we can together hear what God has to say. Now what I tend to do when I'm studying is after I've read and prayed over the passage, I will read scholars whom I trust, who I know are sound biblical scholars to see what they think about a particular difficult passage. And in a couple of cases in our verses today, there are huge differences of opinion. And there are also two or three little places where there's some differences that I think we can work through. But here's what I do, and this is what I want to teach you. What I do is, if there's a passage, and it's obvious that scholars have widely divergent opinions on what it means, number one, I'm probably going to pick the one I think makes the most sense to me, and you'd probably do the very same thing. But then I also can't hold that too strongly because obviously very wise people have different opinions. So then I try to look for threads of commonality. What do those different opinions have in common? Rather than looking at the differences, what do they share in common? And so today as we look at our scripture passage, we're going to be doing just that. We're going to be looking not only at the divergent opinions about a couple of issues, but also what do those things share in common so from that common thread, we can let God speak to us in our hearts today. So that's where we're going. So with that wonderful introduction, let's jump into Genesis chapter 6, okay? In verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6, we start with a general statement about the time period in which these events are happening. It says, when mankind began to multiply on the earth— Okay, mankind began to multiply. 
Well, what we don't realize until we go back and do the math is that from the time of creation until this point, over 1,650 years have passed. You say, well, how in the world do you know that, Pastor? Well, if we assume that the Bible literally is God's Word, which it is, and we assume that it's accurate, which it is, all we have to do is watch the genealogies from Adam to Seth to his son to his son to his son, and we just add the time up. And when we come from the time of the creation of Adam until the time when, Mo, when uh, Noah was 500 years old, we have 1,656 years. Now, a lot of people can be born in 1,656 years of history. And we know nothing about that period of time except for a little clue or two within the genealogies that we have in Scripture. So, for example, at the end of chapter 4, there's a wonderful verse after we see the line of Cain and then we have the line of Seth in chapter 5. But at the bottom of, ver of chapter 4 in verse 26, it says, A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Now, what that means is, I think, that at that point, people began understanding we have to worship this God who has created us and sustained us. So we know there were people that were beginning to understand what it meant to put their trust in God and to rely on Him. And so in that time, in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, When mankind began to multiply out on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, verse 2, saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Now, we just got to stop right there because there is our first big, huge issue. What in the world does the passage mean when it says sons of God and daughters of men or daughters of mankind? First of all, obviously there were more than daughters being born. I know it says in verse 1, and when daughters were born to them, because that's where our story is going, is about their daughters. But the bottom line is if there hadn't been sons born, there would be no daughters, right? Okay, that's just common sense. But the big question is, who are these sons of God, and who are these daughters of men? Well, there are basically three theories. And each theory would have its own logical application. One theory is that the sons of God being created by God were angels, probably fallen angels. Just like Satan in chapter 3 entered into a serpent and tricked Eve, that there were these demonic spirits that entered into the bodies of human mortal men because they wanted to have relationships with the beautiful women that they saw walking around on the earth. And there are pros and cons to that view, but there are some very wise people, John MacArthur being one of them, and other great preachers and teachers that truly believed that this was a spiritual issue or a material issue in the sense of one was of the spiritual realm, one was of the fleshly realm, and so these angelic spirits, these fallen spirits went into humanity and had wives of human women. Second theory is that these sons of God were rulers because oftentimes in the ancient world, a king, a ruler, a despot was considered a child of God in terms of God had placed him in that role. And so this was some form of despotic, uh, authoritarian rulership where a king could go in and choose any woman he wanted to be his wife, to, to go into his harem. There also was a tradition back in those days where uh, from other writings we know, where the king would have what was called the first night rites. In other words, if you were going to marry a woman and your wedding was for Friday, the king had the permission to come and take your bride-to-be and literally have her for himself the night before your wedding. Horrific, terrible abuse 
of people under their rule. The third opinion is that the sons of God were literally young men who had committed their lives to serving God and following God. Some people believe they were only from the line of Seth. I don't necessarily think that's the case, but they were godly young men. And then these daughters of men were young women who came from families that did not honor God. Now, to be honest with you, of those three opinions, I hold the third one. I really believe this is more about a spiritual differentiation between these sons of God in the sense that they were committed to God and these daughters of men who were committed to man and mankind and earthly things. But I can't hold that opinion too tightly because people who I really love and respect have differing opinions on it. So, like I said, what I do is I look for a thread that runs through that. What are the three things, or what, are the, what do those three opinions have in common? I think the biggest thing they have in common is whatever the reality is that this passage is talking about, people had gone and violated God's standard for marriage. Whether it was some kind of a demonic thing where a man thought by having some kind of special powers, spiritual powers, he could dominate a woman or something, whether it was kings and rulers that had control over their subject, or whether it was just godly young men who because they saw with their eyes a woman, and even though she may not be a godly young woman, he said, I want to marry her because she's beautiful and I want to, 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 to marry her and have children with her. The bottom line is God's rules had been broken. God had set a standard for what marriage was supposed to be, what it was supposed to look like. He was supposed to be the one that brought people together based on their spiritual commitment to Him, and they had violated that. And so whether it was the first option, the second option, the third option, the thing that we see in common is someone broke God's rules. And if I could just for a second jump to the application of that, I think one of the things that says to us is that when we in our lives run fast and loose with the rules that God sets up for marriage, for family, for the home, there are going to be consequences. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But it says that these sons of God saw the daughters of mankind, that they were beautiful. They took any they chose as wise for themselves. Verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now, this is a little smaller issue. Let me just mention it. Some people believe that meant that God says, I'm going to give them 120 years to repent, and then I'm going to bring the end. Other people believe that he was going to shorten the lifespan to 120 years. The bottom line is God says, I'm going to be patient. I understand they're corrupt, I understand that they're flesh, and I'm going to do my part to give them time to be able to repent. You remember last week we looked at Cain. Even though he had murdered his own brother, God still had grace and mercy for him. And here is God again showing his grace. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Now, here is another one of these little small issues we have to deal with. Who were these Nephilim? Well, you know, one of the things we always do when we're studying our Bibles is we look for other places in the Bible where the same word is used. And you don't have to turn there, but let me read for you the one other place where this word is used. And it's in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13 is the passage where the ten spies go in to spy out the promised land while the children of Israel are still sitting in the wilderness waiting to cross the Jordan River. They went in, they spied out the land, they came back, and they said in verse 31 of Numbers 13, we can't go up against the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. 
The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seen seemed the same to them. So we immediately jumped to the conclusion that the Nephilim must have been some kind of gigantic people. But you know what? It's not what the word means at all. The word Nephilim literally means the falling ones. Now, I don't mean like falling over themselves or stumbling, more like falling in terms of pouncing. They were extremely violent and vicious race of men. Now, you say, okay, so those are the men that were seen in numbers. Well, now, wait a minute. We've got to use our common sense here. The Nephilim, if they were here prior to the flood, would have been destroyed. So really what Numbers 13 is talking about is kind of like what we say when we talk about Attila the Hun. Man, that guy is like Attila the Hun. They became a famous race of people known in the history of Israel as they told their stories as being amazingly aggressive people who would attack those that they could subjugate or control. And so they became almost like a legend like the Huns or like some other great powerful group of people. They weren't literally physical descendants of them. And some people believe that the Nephilim were the children of these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Some people believe it just means that while that was going on, there also were these Nephilim. See, if you read the passage carefully, it says, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. So it could just mean that at the same time, these Nephilim were there. I'm not so interested in how they got there. I'm more interested about who they were and how they were viewed. Look again at what it says. In verse 4, it says, They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. One translation says they were the heroes. So not only has marriage and family been distorted and perverted by this generation from what God stood, so were the heroes that they looked up to. They didn't look up to the godly men. They didn't look up to the Noahs. They didn't look up to the Enochs. They didn't look up to the Lamechs. They looked up to men who could attack and control other people. We see that in our world today. We elevate and, 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 and lionize people who are at times despicable because they show themselves to be real people. They're human. They admit their humanity. And I wonder sometimes, while I think people should be honest, when we elevate and respect people for that, what we're telling our children is you respect people who do these terrible things. Is that really what God wants? Is that really who God wants us to teach our children to respect and love? I don't think so. So we go on in verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now this is the second big rock. The first one was those sons of God and daughters of men. The second one is what does it mean for God to grieve? I thought that God couldn't be grieved. After the Bible even says that God does not grieve and God does not change his mind. Yet he says, I regret the fact that I even made man on the earth. In verse 7, he goes on to say, Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Some people say, well, that's just using human terms to describe God. Well, I definitely believe God has emotions. I believe that God can feel pain and sorrow over our sin. I don't think this means that God was sorry he ever created us, because if that were the case, why would he do it again? He continued to allow humanity to exist when he could have wiped everyone off and started from scratch. I think what it refers to is God's sadness over the way that we as humanity had destroyed and twisted and perverted 
what God had originally intended. God wanted to have a relationship with his creation. But all they could think of, it says, every scheme of their minds were nothing but evil all the time. So what does God do? God says, I have to set the record straight. As a matter of fact, this word for regretted, I won't go into all this right now, but this word regretted actually is a business term. It's an accounting term for balancing the books. You see, God always brings things into balance, doesn't he? When there is sin, there are consequences. Either the consequences are he shows mercy to us or he punishes us. But something has to be done. And so God says, I see the condition that humanity is in and something must be done about this because I am just and I am righteous. And so he says, I'm going to wipe off from the face of the earth all mankind whom I've created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Beloved, I don't want you to get so caught up in the difficulties of sons of God and daughters of men and God grieving and who the Nephilim were and what all those things mean. I want us to see what this says to us today. The two things that jump out at me are that these people perverted things that God had created for their good. They perverted marriage and family. They perverted the people that they turned into heroes and famous people. And as because of that, God said, I have to set things right. I have to correct that. And in this case, it was by destroying and making a fresh start with the one man in his family who remained righteous. And by the way, that's the important part of the whole story. Remember I told you last week, the Bible is not a book of stories about people. The Bible is a book of stories about God. And in verse 8, and I'm kind of sorry that in the Holman they put the however after Noah's name because literally in the Hebrew it says, but Noah. And I love those, those sentences that start with the word but. So a lot of times in the New Testament it's but God in his mercy. This says, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. All of these wicked people, an entire planet filled with people whose every thought was to wickedness. But Noah found grace, found favor. Same word in the Hebrew language, found grace. Why? Because he had done all the right things? No. Let me jump just for a second down to verse 9, just so you can see. It says, he was a righteous man, he was blameless among his contemporaries, and he walked with God. Now that doesn't mean he was sinless. It doesn't mean that he was righteous in his own merits. He had a relationship with God. He walked with God. There's only one other person so far in the Bible that says he walked with God, and that was Enoch. And he walked with God so that God just took him right on home with him without going through the doorway of death. So Noah was a man who walked with God. He had a relationship with God. So because of that, God found favor with him. God gave him grace, and he spared him and his wife and their three sons and, their three, and his son's wives. So what do we learn from that? Well, first of all, if we choose to run fast and loose with the rules that God has set out for us, God is not just going to stand by and cluck his tongue and say, oh, you need to do better. There are consequences. If you are living your life today and you're in a situation where you have taken what God has given you, you have twisted it, it could be your mind, your heart, the choices that you make, you need to understand God is not going to let that go on forever. Yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. But if you flaunt that, if you do away with that, if you do not accept that for yourself, if you go on living the life that you choose to live and the way you choose to live it, there will be consequences. That's what God's Word says over and over and over again. 
Secondly, we need to understand that we've got to be careful who we look up to. I do not get into politics. I, I, that's up to each individual. But there are people on the political stage today who, even though they perhaps are the least qualified for the positions to which they would aspire, are being chased literally by millions of people just because of the tough guy image that they can portray. I don't know that we want to turn those kind of people into heroes. But the most important thing we learned, I think, from this passage is that even if all the world around us seems to be going in a direction that is 180 degrees contrary to what God intends, if we will stand faithful, if we will stand true, if we will teach our children to make wise decisions, if we will teach them what God's plan is for marriage and family, if we will teach them what God's desire is for the people we should respect and emulate, God will see that, He will honor that, and He will grant us His grace and His favor. So, beloved, I want you to hear me say this morning, that you need to examine your life. Examine the standards and the priorities that you have in your life. Are you focusing on this world and this life, or are you focusing on what's going to matter for eternity? Are you elevating things and people that God would not elevate in His view? Are you teaching your children what God's standards are? For their lives, not just marriage in the home, but the way they should treat their friends, the way they should act in public places, the way they should treat people in authority over them. Are you teaching them? Are you modeling for them when you come home at the end of the day and talk about a situation you had with your boss at work that day? Are you taking the time to help your children see by your lives what God's standards are for living a Christian life? Are you teaching them who to respect? Are you teaching them who to look up to? Are you teaching them who they should want to emulate in their lives? If so, even though all of their peers, all of their friends, all of your friends may say, you're just crazy. <laughs> I can't believe that you're taking that stand on this issue. Everybody else in the office has agreed we're going to do this. Everybody else in the club has agreed we're going to do this. Everybody else on the street has agreed we're going to do this. Everybody else in our nation, in our state, in our community has agreed we're going to do this. You say, not us, not me. We will say, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And God says, that relationship with me, I will honor. I will respect. I will give you grace. You have found favor in my sight. I don't know about you. I like getting attaboys. I like when you come up to me after a sermon and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. I really, you, you hit it right on the head today. But let me tell you what I really aspire to desire. <laughs> and that is to hear God say, you did what I wanted you to do. You said what I wanted you to say. You delivered the message I gave you to deliver. And I hope you're the same way, that you are looking for God's favor, not man's favor. So today, let me ask you to look into your own heart. Look into your own life. Look for those areas where you may have gotten out of sync with God's plan. Oh, you may not have every thought, every scheme of your mind, but there are areas in your mind and your life that are set on things that are not honoring to God. Right now, come to the cross. Take that. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. He died for that sin. 
He paid the penalty so that you don't have to suffer the consequences. And if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you never surrendered your life to Him as Lord of your life and Savior of your life, let me tell you, you are not going to be able to get this right on your own. You need to put your trust in Him. Just like Noah was able to carry the seed on to a new generation, so Jesus Christ offers a spiritual remedy. He becomes the ark that protects us, that we can we can be taken through the difficulties of this life, through the struggles, through the anguish, and find in Him the rest that we need. So if you've never done that, let me encourage you to do that today. We're going to pray together, and then you're going to have a chance to respond. And as you respond, I want it to be from your heart. I hope your mind has been engaged, your heart has been touched. Now it's time for your will. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Lord, we love you this morning. I know that there are passages in the Old Testament where we can get so caught up in the technicalities of what words mean and phrases mean that we miss the underlying message. I have no idea for certainty who those sons of God were, but I know that whoever they were, they violated your rules, and you will not stand for that. You are patient, but your patience is only for a season. And Father, I know there are times in my life where I have taken advantage of your patience to sin against you. And many, many times I've had to suffer the consequences for those sins. And I know there are people here today who are in that same situation right now. They're playing fast and loose with you. They're knowing that you're a patient God. And yet you've said, my patience will only be for a while. And Lord, I pray that we will get our standards in line with yours. I pray that we will learn how to emulate and respect men and women who are the kind of men and women that you would honor. Not that the world would honor, but that you would honor. I pray that we will look in our own lives and hearts and see where there are areas that we need to surrender to you and to your standards and then do whatever it takes to get back in line with your plan. Lord, there's some of us here who are trying as hard as we can to live a Noah life, walking with you, living in righteousness. And while we're never blameless, we run to you, confess our sins, find forgiveness, and then move forward. But I know there are times when we feel like we are just being beaten up every day because of our stand for you. Help us to remember that even though there were only eight men and women on the planet, who were serving you. You found them, and they found favor in your eyes. And you'll do the same for us. And Lord, for that one or two or three or four or more who have never put their trust in your Son as their Savior, who have never surrendered their lives to His will, I pray that today they will recognize the fact that your patience, while great, is not forever. And they'll recognize their need while there's still hope. For we ask this in Jesus' name.